You've downloaded the podcast edition of NewsHour Extra, and today, in the week of the Nobel Peace Prize, we're looking at conflict resolution, big topic. Uh, before we do that, we'd just like to ask for your help. Uh, NewsHour Extra is looking for a new name. We thought it was about time. It's coming up to our third birthday, something uh, that reflects what we do each week, taking a hard look at a single topic. Uh, we'd really settled on NewsHour Extra because it's a programme that takes topics dealt with on our daily News Hour programme and, uh, well, drills down into it in a bit of extra detail. So we're trying to have a think about it and would welcome any contributions from you who listen to the programme. So if you've got any ideas about what uh, News Hour Extra could be renamed, uh, do let us know. And the way to do that, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk, tweet at bbcnhextra, give us your views, new name, probably in the new year. And now then, back to this week's programme, where living in dangerous times, there are many conflicts across the globe, Yemen, Syria, lots of tense standoffs, Catalonia, North Korea. Uh, The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, recently said, we're a world in pieces, we need to be a world at peace. Uh, There is lots of mediation and negotiation to be done, uh, but how to do it best? And to discuss that, we have Khoshi Kasuri, former foreign minister of Pakistan, who believes he got pretty close to uh, a very elusive goal, a settlement of Kashmir. He's joining us from Lahore. We have Jonathan Powell, uh, chief of staff to Tony Blair when he was prime minister and one of the main negotiators in Northern Ireland in the peace process there. We have Edward Lutvak, a strategic consultant to the United States and allied governments and a military contractor. He's joining us from Tokyo. And we have Elisa Tanaala, from the Crisis Management Initiative of the Marty Artisari Centre, who has long experience of uh, supporting peace processes. She'll tell us more about that. She's in Helsinki. So let's just start with a general question to all of you. Jonathan Powell, uh, you've worked on a lot of uh, these conflicts. Do, Do people only talk and settle when they've been defeated or when they're exhausted by war? Well... Neither, actually. When they tend to be prepared to talk is when you have what the academics call a perceived mutually hurting stalemate, which essentially means that both sides realise they can't win and are actually hurting. I was the Prime Minister's Special Envoy in Libya and I went there thinking, oh good, there's a, uh, there's a stalemate here. But actually when I got there it turned out that it was a stalemate that wasn't mutually hurting. Both sides thought they could gain a bit more territory, a bit more money, and they kept on fighting. In Northern Ireland, what we had was a real mutually hurting stalemate. The British Army realised they could contain the IRA forever uh, at a certain level of violence, but they were not going to defeat it militarily. And the IRA, the leaders of the IRA, realised about the mid-1980s that they could go on fighting forever, but they were never going to get the Brits out of Northern Ireland by violence. And they then started reaching out to John Hume, to the Irish government, and finally to the British government. So you need to have that mutually hurting stalemate. Where it does not exist, it's very difficult to get to a settlement. Koshi Kasuri, does that ring bells with what you experienced in Kashmir? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, I have listed about nine war and near-war situations between Pakistan and India. Three big wars, two small wars, if you count Siachen, and four near-war situations, including the largest mobilization since Second World War in 2001, when a million soldiers stood eyeball to eyeball. Both Pakistan and India realized, particularly after nuclearization, and even on conventional warfare, that neither could win against the other, that despite these nine war and near-war situations, neither had compelled the other to change its position, neither had been able to seize territory from the other in Kashmir, 
And I think it happened at a time when I was foreign minister, quite apart from these factors, there was a rising middle class in both the countries. The economy was doing very well, and the rising middle class was, uh, uh, you know, uh, behind some of these uh, initiatives that were launched during our government. And uh, I think uh, I agree with that, that both countries had realized that there was no way they could win against the other. And then we had friends in the West, particularly the United States at that time, which was a close ally of Pakistan, particularly on the uh, Taliban issue after 2001. And they didn't want that uh, Pakistan and India should go to yet another war while they were in Afghanistan. So all these factors, I think, coalesced at that time. Okay, Edward Lutvak, how would you answer the question about what conditions need to be in place to have a successful peace process? Well, the purpose of war is to bring peace by exhaustion, by the exhaustion of the will to fight and by people changing their idea of the minimum acceptable or simply going down in defeat. And the reason why since 1945 we've had endless protracted unresolved conflicts is because the United Nations has legitimized and systematized something which always existed, great power interventions to prevent people settling their own disputes. And also because of a whole plague of peace institutions, conflict resolution institutions, every unemployed Swede is descending down in the Middle East to do this and that, and all of this machinery has resulted in protracted war. So what we have here is the machinery of creating endless wars. There's lots to uh, talk about there, and uh, we will do so over the next hour. Elisa Tana'ale, you're with the Crisis Management Initiative of the Mati Artisari Centre, so not an unemployed Swede as uh, being sort of sent out to the Middle East, but nonetheless something maybe uh, similar. So how do you re- <laughs> respond to what you've heard about uh, peace, you know, all the machinery of peace prolonging war? Well, yes, that's, of course, an, an, an opinion, something that we've heard as well in the context of, I don't know, of, of, of the Arab Spring in general, that what if that the revolutions would have happened if somebody would have mediated them before they happened. So it's not new, but I would see it rather Darwinistic to say that we should not try to prevent this conflict and not try to help resolve them, that instead just watch people to resolve their problems by guns or by arms by war. Okay, well let, let's let's try and focus this in on on, on this discussion on with a particular example. And I thought we could just talk about Catalonia because it's a potentially violent situation in Spain and it may it may go that way. Uh, and neither side seems to be talking to each other at the moment as far as we know. So I'm just going to try and understand your different perspectives and your different skills by asking you to explain what you would do in a situation uh, like the one in Catalonia at the moment. So Jonathan Powell I'm going to start with you. You've got this because I mean I would say that because you wrote a big article on this in the Financial Times just now. So, so what would you say needs to be done in Catalonia? Well, I'd say what will happen if nothing is done. Um, if we took Edward Lukács' uh, approach, is that uh, the Catalan government would declare UDI on Monday, uh, Unilateral Declaration of Independence. And the Spanish government will respond by uh, invoking Article 155 of the Constitution, which is to take over power to suspend the Catalan government and rule from Madrid. They have a very large number of uh, civil guard in there, and we saw what happened on 
last Sunday with the Civil Guard, I think it would be a whole lot worse come Monday. So the sensible thing seems to me for the two sides to sit down together to try and find a way of negotiating. The problem that's stopping them doing that is they both have preconditions, and this is something we run into all around the world. On the Spanish government side, they say they have to give up illegal actions. That means they have to stop uh, seeking independence before they'll sit at the table with them. The Catalan government has been saying up to now that the Spanish government must accept independence and have it on the table or they won't sit down. Both sides need to drop that, um, those preconditions and actually sit down and start to talk. When you start to talk, you find that things go in a very different direction than you might expect. When we sat down with the IRA in Northern Ireland, the position of the IRA was they would not stop fighting until there was United Ireland. In fact, when we negotiated with them, uh, we found that what they really wanted was power sharing. They really wanted human rights protections. They really wanted the Irish language, a whole series of different things. And a negotiation, once you start it, can be like an escalator. You put your foot on the first step and it carries you up in directions you don't necessarily expect. So I think in that case, we'd be very unwise just to leave them to natural selection and see who wins the fight, because we could be back to homage to Catalonia. We'd be much better off getting them into a dialogue. Edward Ludvac, how do you respond to that proposal? Well, if both sides wish, mediators always play a, a wonderful role if two sides call for mediation. So if the Catalans and the Spanish both ask for mediation, the Spanish government thereby surrendering its claim to sovereignty and therefore say, well, this is a conflict and there are two sides to it, and each of them seeks mediation, and they then agree on the mediator, then why not? But this is not, of course, what I was addressing. I was addressing great power intervention, such as the one that gives us the Arab-Israeli conflict after all these years, or at least the Israel-Palestine conflict, because they wouldn't let them settle it. Elisa Tana'ala, how would you... Uh analyze the situation in Spain at the moment and, and do you think it is possible to, to, uh, for outsiders to, to help prevent any violence erupting there? I think so. If it would be done on different levels, I would think that the talks would start with the Spanish government and with the Catalonian authorities on a higher political level and how we would look at it from CMI would be to look perhaps for our channels on how to speak with the different representatives of the security sector, with the civil guard, with the Catalan forces, and try to see if there's any possibility to have them speaking. And then we would look at the youth sector, at the youth leaders and the young people in Catalonia especially. So that, uh, to, we, to, we, to support the efforts if there would be if there, if there would be an effort of the talks going on. Yeah, so just to explain that, it's, it's, it's a sort of a specialist role your organisation has is not being in the, the room with the, the top negotiators from the two leaderships, but it's, it's trying to offer support, if I understand it rightly, by getting people at, at different elements of society to talk. Exactly, although we sometimes do support the negotiators or the mediators, sometimes we do support the process, but very often as well we try to look at the other sectors of the society to support the the process of getting to an agreement. Kushi Kasuri, what do you think of what's happening in Spain? Okay, now uh, coming to the Scotland question, my own experience. I think neither party, if it really in, uh, insists on preconditions, will make progress, but does it mean that you should let them drift? I think one way out, and this is Pakistan-India experience, is the back channel. I'm sure there are people that the Catalans and the uh, Spanish government realize are well-wishers of both. 
Now, they, it, uh, the advantage of back channel is that it operates uh, without media glare. It saves many faces. Nobody knows who is uh, conceding more or who's conceding less, because really nobody's conceding anything until you reach a certain point. You're just talking through people. And you don't even have to first say that you've started the back channel. And I think that, from my experience, it was the most useful thing. And uh, we were almost able to resolve the issue of Jammu and Kashmir. If the foreign ministers were to meet as or the prime ministers, there'd be so much of publicity, so many questions, so much media spin that really nothing could be done. My experience was that on an, on an issue where you had nine war and near war situations, when we talked secretly or when our negotiators talked se secretly, is very sensible. And the papers came back and forth. And I think in the case of Catalan, I, since I do not know as much as uh, other participants seem to know about the issue, but from what I've been reading generally on the Catalan issue and the recent crisis, I think one way would be going by my experience, people being approached by friends of both to act on the back channel. And I think both parties would like to save face without conceding to any preconditions. OK, well, that's very interesting. And we're going to pick up and talk to you about Kashmir in the second half of the programme specifically, because it was such an astonishing thing that you came close to resolving that utterly impenetrable issue. But we're just going to talk now about Northern Ireland. You mentioned it a couple of times, Jonathan Powell, but you obviously have such experience of this. Let's hear from a man who some years ago many feared. Jerry Kelly was a volunteer for the Provisional Irish Republican Army, the IRA. He helped in a bomb attack on the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, and a caretaker died in that incident and 200 people were injured. He played a key role in a prison escape in which two guards died, but from violence, Jerry Kelly moved to peace and played a leading role in the negotiations that led to peace in Northern Ireland, and today he's active in party politics. But uh, first of all, the early part of his career, does he regret having used violence? Everybody uh, will have regrets in their lives, and if you're involved, if you have been involved in uh, um, military conflict and a combatant situation, then it's it's fair to assess that mistakes that are made uh, may be of greater magnitude, personal magnitude. Uh, but if the question is about making the decision to go into the IRA, then I have no regrets whatsoever. Um, I was and am very proud of having uh, joined the resistance to uh, what was then an apartheid uh, regime. In your period as an elected politician and someone committed to the peace process, did you ever face the victims of the IRA and say to them, I'm proud of what I did? Well, I've said it quite often uh, when asked the question, and uh, it's not an uncommon view, by the way, if you ask uh, most uh, Republican activists uh, who were involved during that period, they will say that. So, you know, you've described as a young man, you've become a volunteer. I presume that it was such a dangerous thing to be a member of the IRA and such an all-encompassing thing. It must have completely dominated your life. You were, I presume, angry about the situation and you, you've got to take this decision to move away from that. And I presume it would have been, in many ways, much easier personally to stay where you were. I don't know if it's easier to stay there. There is more certainty in it because decisions had been made. The only way to approach this was uh, to face force with force. Then it goes on for such a long period of time. Uh, and I'd been in jail and, and out of jail a few times. 
it was a hard a hard and personal thing to talk to your enemy basically historically irish leaders who have made deals with british governments have been killed by irishmen who who think that was the wrong thing to do did you did you trust your own side yes well the, the one thing that you have to realize about a, this was a very prolonged conflict is that you know the people that you're dealing with. You know, you haven't just known them for six months or whatever. You've been through many things with them, which includes jail, of course, and you get to know people very well in jail. And that. Uh, so on. from our point of view, I, if you're asking me personally, I had no difficulty in terms of the trust with the leadership we had. However, I could see that the trust issue is a difficult. I mean, it's often said, and I'll be said again here, that the biggest negotiation you will do during a period of conflict resolution is actually with your own people. That is the hardest and most difficult. We, we've got Jonathan Powell in the studio with us today. When you first met him, what did you think of him? <laughs> be, on, be honest. <laughs> no, I will be honest. <laughs> I was I was involved in the, the 94 talks, and it was while the Conservative Party was in. And frankly, it was to and fro, and it was shadow boxing, it was all that. People were stating their case and, and all of that on both sides. When the uh, Labour government came in, practically overnight, the conversation at that negotiating table changed completely. When Jonathan came uh, into that as, as the chief uh, negotiator, it was quite obvious that while everybody was still testing it, I presume that included Jonathan, <laughs> and Tony Blair, as well as ourselves, it clearly was a different circumstance. And upon that, you know, trust started to be built. Jerry Kelly there, former IRA man, now uh, elected politician. Jonathan Powell, what did you make of him when you walked in the room? Well, I have to say, the first time I met uh, terrorists, uh, people from the IRA, I didn't feel very warm and cuddly about them. The IRA had tried to shoot my father in 1940 and injured him in the ear. They had put my brother, who worked for Mrs Thatcher, on a death list for eight years. So I didn't shake hands with the IRA leaders the first time that I met them. A few days later, I got a call, uh, actually from Martin McGuinness rather than Jerry Kelly, who asked me to come to Derry Incognito and not to tell the police and the army. And I asked Tony Blair and he said go. So I did. I took a plane, took a taxi um, to Derry, stood on a street corner until two guys with shaved heads turned up and pushed me into the back of a taxi. They drove me around for an hour till I was completely lost and then pushed me out outside a little house on the edge of an estate. And I knocked on the door and Martin McGuinness answered the door on crutches. Made a very unfunny joke about kneecapping, the way that the IRA used to punish people by drilling holes through their knees. And we spent three hours in that house. We made no breakthroughs at all. But what came home to me was that if we were going to make peace, we had to be prepared to build trust, as he said there, with people who we did not trust, people who we'd been fighting for a long time, people who'd caused real damage on our side and on their side. And I could no longer ask them just to come to Downing Street or come to castles in, uh, in Stormont, but actually go and meet them on their turf. And then for the next 10 years, I spent a lot of time crossing the sea to go and meet them in safe houses in Belfast and Derry and Dublin and so on. And I think building that trust, but maintaining the clarity that you are negotiating with them, not their friends, is a difficult but important thing to do if you're going to make progress. Um, uh, Kashid was saying earlier the importance of uh, back channels uh, in the case of Kashmir, and it was absolutely true in Northern Ireland. Long before I got involved in Northern Ireland, we had a secret back channel to the IRA from 1972 onwards, opened up by SIS. And that the back channel was crucial in negotiating a ceasefire in 74, but even more importantly, that provided the channel for uh, the correspondence between John Major and the IRA that allowed the first ceasefire to happen. 
And I think that back channel, that sort of relationship I managed to build, build by meeting secretly with the IRA was absolutely crucial to making progress. Koshi Kasuri, does that mirror your experience? Yes, absolutely. The back channel, I myself mentioned, and in fact, it helped uh, on the trust deficit bit also, because while we were talking on Kashmir on the back channel, it was agreed on many things that the CBMs which we were following on the front channel, that is the composite dialogue, should be encouraged. So as we were making progress on Kashmir on the back channel without people realizing anything, because both were keen to hide any progress on Kashmir, particularly the Indians. But uh, uh, we did agree on lots of uh, CBMs, and that helped improve the atmosphere. So I think uh, they go hand in hand. And uh, my experience has been very uh, positive on the back channel. And I think even now, Pakistan and India are going to make progress, particularly after Mr. Modi having... Uh, uh, taken over, which is a vastly different government from either Manmohan Singh or Vajpayee's uh, uh, earlier, which was a BJP government, uh, we need the back channel even more because uh, there is a lot of uh, antipathy and almost hatred in certain quarters about some of the policies that are being pursued, like uh, lynching of Muslims for eating beef, the situation in Kashmir. So back channel is required more than ever now. Okay. And I'm... OK, well, we will get on to all that and all, all what's happening in Kashmir. But just, just as we come to an end of this first half, Edward Ludvak, can you just comment on what you've heard? Yeah, on the Northern Ireland situation, you did not have a major institution that was committed to perpetuating the conflict. The IRA uh, and the different IRAs had been such institutions that were committed to simply conflict perpetuation. But they had, through the conflict itself, war had done its job, and there was this process of exhaustion. In the case of Pakistan, of course, the, the Pakistani army is an institution completely committed to the perpetuation of conflict. And when you have a, a country, Pakistan, which is dominated by an institution, which is committed to not ending the conflict, you will never succeed, no matter how clever you are with CBNs and IBNs and everything else. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour Extra. That's one hour of discussion on a single topic every week. This, uh, this week, as you can hear, peacemaking. There are lots of other BBC World Service podcasts. In particular, perhaps I could recommend Witness, which is the historical podcast, looks at issues with eyewitnesses from way back talking about their experiences. That's the Witness BBC World Service podcast. But as I say, you're listening to NewsHour Extra, and we're going to pick up our discussion again now. A reminder of our panel... Khurshid Kasuri, former Foreign Minister of Pakistan, Jonathan Powell, one of the negotiators of the Northern Ireland peace process, Edward Lutvak, a strategic consultant to US and allied governments, and Elisa Tanaala from the Mati Atasari Centre. Now, Khurshid Kasuri, you've been talking about Kashmir a bit, and just at the end of the first half of the programme, Edward Lutvak made the point that, uh, in his view, the Pakistan army you know, exists to perpetuate these conflicts, it requires them for its budgets and so on. When you tried to convince the Pakistan army that they should settle on Kashmir, how did that go? Oh, well, I'll come to that, but I just for I'd like to, particularly because Mr. Lutwak has made the point, ironically, 
most of the progress that's been made on Pakistan-India was under military rule, which is, I wish that had not been the case. I wish the civilians had succeeded because uh, under Field Marshal Ayub Khan, we, they were on the verge of having an agreement when Sheikh Abdullah and Jay, uh, Prakash Narayan were sent by Nehru to talk to uh, Ayub Khan on the need for a settlement. They agreed, almost agreed on that, and Nehru died the next day. So the situation seemed to be a bit jinxed. Now, as far as the situation in our time was concerned, uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Now there's no doubt anybody in India who was associated with it, including the then National Security Advisor and the then Foreign Secretary, the then Back Channel Negotiator. They've all, during the last month, and since you deal with Pakistan-India relations, you may have followed the statements. They've all said that whatever I stated in the book is correct, that we are, we are nearing a solution. Now, what was the role of the army? The role of the army, it took us three years talking to them. There was a foreign office represented by me and the foreign secretary. There was the DGISI, General Kiani, who later on becomes the chief of army staff. There was the four-star general, General Hassan Salim Hayat, vice chief of the army staff. And there was President Musharraf. Now, you know, it's commonly believed that because Musharraf was in charge, uh, things became easy. But if that were the case, then I think Mr. Lutwak's arguments would probably not be that valid because the army is committed to fighting with India, not having a resolution. The opposite should be the case. But what I'm saying is, in fact, that it wasn't made easier simply because Musharraf was the chief of army staff. Of course, it, in some ways it did. But he had to convince all the core commanders. He had to convince all the elements in the military. And there was a dialogue going on. The, without the military, this progress could not have been made. It took us three years. There were numerous meetings in various world capitals. And, of course, United States government was also encouraging, although they were not aware of the details. But I used to receive many calls, uh, first from General Colin Powell, later on from uh, Secretary Rice, and President Bush was also taking interest in it. But it was our negotiators who were really doing the job. And the Pakistan army was committed to one thing. They needed a settlement on Kashmir. Indians have traditionally been saying, let's talk on all issues. But uh, first of all, let's talk on trade and culture and not talk on Kashmir. That was not acceptable to the army, because, and it was not acceptable to many people in Pakistan, because they thought that that was just an excuse not to have a settlement on Kashmir. Yeah, but, what, and, but when you went to the army, and, and you, so you're describing this process, General Sheriff goes to these core commanders and says, you know, this absolutely existential battle that's been going on for 50 years, you're going to have to settle it. How, what was, how difficult was that? How did those conversations go? Well, the conversation, they did have reservations. They would may have their reservations. We would put them on paper. It'd be sent to the Indian side. I'm sure the Indians had similar reservations. It now transpires. A book has been written by Prime Minister Manmohan Singh's uh, advisor, uh, Dr. Sanjay Baru. The, the book's title is Accidental Prime Minister, in which he says you know, on Kashmir and on Siachen, he consulted not only the current military chiefs, he consulted every retired lieutenant 
general who are served in Kashmir. So I'm sure the same process going on on both sides. And I don't agree with this, that the military did not uh, wish uh, for a settlement. We almost did, and did. you don't have to take my word. There have been uh, articles in the media. The Indians have written about it. My book has not been refuted. In fact, uh, can you believe it, that the uh, book launching in Delhi was attended by Prime Minister Manmohan Singh and Deputy Prime Minister from BJP, LK Adwani, because Vajpayee was not in a position health-wise to attend. And, and President Musharraf attended on the Pakistani side. And he said whatever was written was correct. Now, so therefore, if the military had really been opposed to it, there was no way. And furthermore, a lot of Indians have written on the subject, and they have said, including Mani Shankarayar, whom you know, a liberal Indian politician who's pointed out on various occasions when progress was made was military was in power. So therefore, what was happening is that they insisted that if you may talk on other issues, composite uh, dialogue issues, Kashmir must also be discussed simultaneously. Right. Edward Ludwak. Every country has an army, and yet countries do make peace and reach agreements. Uh, the fact is that these armies are instrumental armies in the service of the state. In the case of Pakistan, everybody knows that the Pakistani army is an institution whose active and retired members lay their hands on vast resources in the country because of their role in the conflict. You see, they will play the game, they'll go along, but in the end, resolving the conflict, recognizing that Pakistan is a much smaller country than India, much weaker, they have to shut up, stay in their place, would mean that the Pakistani army would become like other armies. Uh, I'll just uh, what we'll do is I'll let you come back once on this, uh, Mr. Kasuri, and then we'll move on. So, what's your response oh, to, 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 yes, to the? My response yeah. is militaries all over the world. There's a certain background to it. You have the military-industrial complex in the United States, where they say that the American military will never allow peace in the world because they have a vested interest. I don't believe this. The same thing. Uh, this sort of argument is being made against the Pakistan army. I mean, you're assuming that everybody is powerless, everybody is weak, there is no public opinion. You were based in Islamabad, you have some of the strongest media in the world that operates in Pakistan. Everybody is taken to task. So what I'm trying to say is that this flies in the face of facts. What he's, he's hypothesizing, I'm telling you that progress was made under Ayub Khan. There's a record to prove that. Ayub what, Khan, in Ayub Khan's day, the Pakistani army resembled an army. It's not today's institution, which goes by the name of the Pakistan army. In the time of Ayub Khan, you had a country and an army in a normal relationship between country and army. That is not the case now. Okay, well, I can yeah, tell you what, that dispute is there, and I think we've, we've heard it and we understand it, and uh, you clearly are not going to agree. Uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to go to Trisha Reedy, and then I will ask Elisa... Uh, Tanala, if you can comment on this, uh, Trisha Reedy uh, works at the UN training mediators. So it's an unusual job. She is the senior trainer of peacemaking and conflict prevention. Uh, this began in 93. Uh, she and her colleagues have trained more than 1,500 senior and mid-level officials from the UN and from governments now. I asked her about the skills she's teaching. 
an ability to listen well, uh, to analyze, to get not stuck on the symptoms of a conflict, but to look deeply at the root causes driving a conflict, to come in with an open mind, understanding that there are many ways to view a conflict situation, and only with that really important material perspective, the needs and concerns of the other parties, can solutions be crafted that are based on the joint needs of the parties. So it sounds like your key bit of advice as you send off your trainees into the world is listen. Exactly. Listen and then jointly come up with solutions because if a solution is proposed only from one party's point of view or imposed on the other, it's highly unlikely that it would be implemented and sustainable. Have you ever sent a trainee into the world who then has sort of emailed you back saying, you know what, it worked, we did this? Yes, definitely. We do follow-up and we ask, was this useful? Are you applying the knowledge and skills in the training? We also select only those that are already in positions of responsibility. So currently, uh, alumni include two foreign ministers, ambassadors, um, heads of UN peace operations, a number of uh, senior UN and regional organization staff. So they are daily contributing to policies and quiet approaches that are addressing root causes of conflict. Well, you say that, but they may be starting wars as well. I mean, who knows? Some of the people actually in the trainings that have been most critical of this interest-based or problem-solving approach have later turned out to be the biggest advocates because they've applied it and sees that it can work. What about body language and all that sort of thing? Does that matter? It's something that's very important to be conscious of. Um, many negotiations take place across cultures, and we know that something like 90% of communication is through body language and tone of voice. So in, in my own culture, in many Western societies, if I want to demonstrate respect, that I'm listening to you, I'm concerned about your problems, I want to hear the, the difficulties you've gone through, I look directly in your eyes. In many cultures, that is the absolute worst thing to do. In fact, it's a sign of disrespect, especially between women and men or youth and elders. So it's really critical that body language or gestures do not get in the way of really important communications to find lasting solutions to conflicts. And there we are. That was uh, Tricia Reedy. So Elisa Tana-Ale, just, uh, well, first of all, what do you make of what she said? Yes, very interesting and very, very needed, of course. There's a lot of trainings, a lot of trainings uh, going on and we do as well. We contribute to some UN trainings at the at CMI. Most of the time, the the mediators, the senior mediators who are high-level politicians and very skilled in what they do, we wouldn't think they would be the first persons needing the training. But the teams around the lead mediator, the teams around the around in different in the different UN tasks or in countries that are contributing as as mediators or facilitators, you would need to train because the mediation once there is an official peace process and a mediation going on, there's a lot of people and a lot of different skills needed. So those professionals especially need that type of training. You've worked, uh, I know, for many years in Colombia. You've recently been in Libya. You've, you've been involved in trying to help with an awful lot of conflicts. Now, can you just give us some ideas? You know, have you got any sort of illustration, a, a story which would help us understand some of the things she was saying? I was struck she said, you know, it's important you listen. It seems so obvious is it difficult to listen? It can be difficult to listen when people when people are very traumatized. And sometimes sometimes it can be they are the ones who are supposed to bring their stories to the truth commission or bring their stories in 
to the negotiators or speak to the mediator. And if they have been very traumatized by the conflict and they haven't had justice, they haven't, they don't know what happened to their relatives, it's very difficult for them to construct a story that the negotiators or the mediators would be able to listen or to make the right decisions. And in the case of Colombia, many people say that one breaking moment was when the victims, a group of victims, traveled to, to Havana where the, the negotiations were taking place, when they were discussing the point on victims, that when the victims, and many of them come from organizations who have worked with victims and, and with the state, with the justice for decades, when they spoke was 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 a turning point for the process. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Powell, you were also involved in, in Colombia. Does that ring true to you? Yes. I mean, not just Colombia, but more generally. You have to be prepared to listen and show respect. Many of these groups in particular uh, feel they've been victims, feel that no one's listened to them. I used to joke in Northern Ireland, if we ended a conversation after only half an hour, we'd have got to 1689 and there'd be 300 years more of grievance to go through before we got to the end of the meeting. But it can often take a very long time. People underestimate how long that period of listening takes. And what people often think listening means is just sitting there and actually what you've got to do is hear. What you've got to hear is what they say this time they didn't say last time or what they've dropped from what they said last time. And look for the patterns there where you can actually reach to make an agreement. And that's the real trick of being a successful negotiator. Now, there's another aspect of this, uh, almost the techniques of uh, peacemaking. Edward Ludwig, I'd like to, with your sort of strategic overview, ask you uh, how, what you think about it. I mean, it's often said only hardliners can deliver agreements because they basically carry their constituencies, right? Uh, so, do, I mean, do you think that's right? Listen, I, I'm actually uh, astonished by the fact that there's all this delving in techniques. There is, after all, a public record of this sort of peacemaking activity. And the public record is that it prolongs conflict. Colombia is a country I'm very familiar with. I really know Colombia, and I've been following the conflict for 30 years. I was involved in it at some point. And I can tell you that the peacemaking became possible once the Colombian army decided to get serious and for the first time actually tried to win, and they hit hard, and they managed to seriously weaken the FLN. In other words, after sort of, uh, you know, handling this conflict as a kind of business activity for the various colonels and generals, political change, social change, brought about actually fighting in earnest. Once they started fighting in earnest, war fulfilled its process. It functioned by exhausting the guerrillas, and, of course, the government permanently wanted it, and so we have a result. As far as I can tell, the mediation, interventions, visitations didn't work. Throughout history, wars have ended because one side won, imposed its will on the other, or didn't, and they reached an agreement halfway, which happened at least as often. And now there is neither the imposition of victory, nor is it the halfway situation. Instead, all these people descend, then they start intervening, slowing down, and getting ceasefires. Ceasefires are the root of all evil, because ceasefires prevent war from fulfilling its only good purpose, which is to bring peace. Because with a ceasefire, both sides rest, 
both sides will recover, both sides can go back into war again. In fact, the protracted conflicts that we have littering the landscape are the result of these imposed ceasefires from outside, which have had the effect of prolonging the war. Of course, the Arab-Israeli thing is classic. That thing could have ended in the 1950s if it hadn't been for external ceasefires being imposed. When finally, for the only time that they had a decent war, which was the October War of 1973, which was not interrupted after 12 hours or 24 hours, but they got to fight for three weeks, the Egyptians and the Israelis reached an actual, a true equilibrium. They met at kilometer 103, and both sides, it was very obvious that these two sides would not fight again, because each had won victories, each had suffered defeats, there had not been this intervention that would prevent them from reaching that point of equilibrium. Elisa Tanaala, I think you're trying to come in. Of course, the Colombian army was one of, during the early 2000s, they were the, one of the biggest recipients of U.S. military aid. So it was a strong army, but they've never had a political role. I don't think it's about the, the, the military becoming serious in this case. It was more the politicians and the FARC becoming serious on wanting on, on wanting to start the, the, the negotiations. And the army came along. And also, I think with the idea that with all this training they had received and, and all the, the, the capacitation, they wanted to become a modern army that, oh, this is at least what they said, to take part in in NATO operations or something like that and then finish this kind of a long and, and, and complicated war against the peasant guerrilla army in the jungle, that they, they, there was, a, there was and, and, and the army was very much backing and still is, still is. I, I haven't heard any analysis saying that any threat for the process would be the army. Once no. they were in, they were in. Well, let's just put it to Jonathan Powell. You've got two different views there that, you know, Edward Lutvak is saying that the, 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 the military victory was the basis of the peace deal and that uh, it wasn't to do with peacemaking. What do you think? Well, I've only been involved in Colombia for six years, not the 30 years that Dr Lutvak has been there. I would say that he's half right. It certainly wouldn't have been peace without the military pressure, without the military being effective. But President Santos was, of course, the Minister of Defence before he became president. And Mm. he was clear that it was that military pressure that had the impact, but that he could not defeat the FARC entirely by military force. He needed to offer them a political way out. And if you look around the world, what seems to work is military pressure combined with a political way out. If there's no political way out, they'll fight to the last man uh, and you'll probably never get to a solution. If you just have a political way out and no pressure, they won't do anything. OK, but just one counterexample, isn't exactly. it? You, you were involved in Sri Lanka and you know all those talks went nowhere. And then when the Tamils were defeated, it I, was over. I wasn't involved in Sri Lanka, but the interesting thing about Sri Lanka is that the Rajapaksa family went around suggesting that was a solution. In fact, it wasn't for three reasons. One, because... Parabakan turned out to be a military fool rather than a military genius and tried to fight a set campaign rather than fighting a guerrilla campaign, in which case he'd still be in the jungle. Two, because the methods used by the Sri Lankan army to finish it off at Landakal Lagoon could not be used by any other government, certainly a Western government. Third, because he never addressed the political problem. The political problem came back, got rid of the, got rid of the Rajapaksa regime, and now we have it open there again. So unless you address the political problem, you will not solve it. Right. Let's just uh, ask as we look ahead. I've heard this comment that conflicts are getting more complicated, that uh, in the Cold War era, it tended to be clearer. There tend to be two combatants and there were people to talk to on both sides. And if you look at now Syria, Yemen, Libya and many places, there are lots of sides involved. 
and it's extremely difficult to know who to talk to and how to deal with it. So, so why don't I come to you on that, Khoshi Kasuri? Do you think, as you look around the world, that the sort of things you did, India, Pakistan, two clear governments, yeah, a lot of places is more complicated than that? Yes, it is. But I'd like to make a general comment, and that is that an unjust peace doesn't bring war. I mean, it results in so many other things, Palestine, Israel, and uh, you have other parts of the world. Even in the case of Japan, where this is a clear case of a victory leading to peace, I mean, the use of nuclear bomb, Japan had no chance at all after that. That's one example that I can think of where war did have an impact. But I don't think a nuclear bomb is going to be used again. I hope never again. So you will have to have a political settlement if you want genuine peace. War can impose a temporary sort of a peace in which the defeated side waits, licks its wounds, and hopes to strike another day. So unless there is a an element of justice in any settlement, simply force will not resolve anything. Uh, I think that's a direct challenge to you, Edward Ludvac. Well, the question is, how did the Egyptian-Israel conflict end? It ended because finally each side fought. Nobody imposed any... Neither side imposed its will on the other. What happened is they reached an equilibrium. Listen, when they met at the tent at kilometer 103, after the first time the two sides were allowed to fight it out, there was an instant agreement from the two sides that they will never fight again because they'd reached a point of equilibrium. Obviously, if the Israelis had won completely, then the Egyptians could have had the revenge, much as the French did with the, with the Germans. Between 1870, the Germans won, then the French... In 1914, go back, 1918, the French win, then the Germans attack. That is also perfectly true. However, what we now have is this machinery, this awful machinery of intervention that systematically prevents outcomes. Bosnia, in Bosnia, there was this atrocious civil war, then multi-party war, very uneven, very unbalanced, and so on. And finally, what happens is that the sides are not allowed to fight it out. Anybody who visits that area today can see what the frozen war looks like. This is not a peace. People don't reconstruct, don't rebuild, don't restart. The normal wars of history is huge destruction, killing everything else. Then people reach the end of the fighting, they rebuild, they reconstruct, they rebuild families, they make children, and, and that is how Europe and the world progress. And now we have this, this legitimization of great power intervention that prevents this happening. Now, in, in the Colombia case, just to go back, I was involved directly in the other conflict, the Peruvian one, between the Sendero Luminoso versus the Peruvian government. And what happened there was the Peruvian government completely won. But why did it win? Because, yes, wonderful military operations are very proud of them. However, massive reform, massive improvement, gigantic results for everybody in Peru to the point that Peru has a larger GDP than Chile, which is an unimaginable outcome. So in other words, you had Alberto Fujimori doing policies that really appeased the population while you were defeating the guerrillas. You have to do both. 
And all of this could not have happened if somebody had intervened to stop that war. Of course, you can allow wars to continue if you wish to do so. We could. I mean, the First World War is an interesting example of a war that continued, but the destruction was pretty dramatic. If you could think of the United States could have a war with North Korea, I don't think there's any doubt about who would win, but the destruction would be appalling. So I don't think it's necessarily a very sensible answer for most of the problems we face. In terms of your question, I think, yes, these uh, conflicts have become more complex. Uh, in Myanmar, for example, there are 17 armed groups that are in a peace process with the government. I don't know that's the really serious change. Though I think the really serious change is what you see in places like Afghanistan and Syria, where you have a lot of parties inside the country who you have to make peace with, but also a lot of parties from outside the country, and not necessarily the great powers. In Syria, we're talking about Iran, we're talking about Turkey, talking about the Gulf, as well as the United States and Russia. And no one of those powers, not even two of those powers, can make peace. That's the really complicated thing. How do you get to peace within the country, within Afghanistan, within Syria, and between those powers outside? Yeah, so that is a feature of the end of the Cold War because there are regional powers now who are not under the control of a superpower. Exactly, and yeah. that, that's what we see. Uh, Elisa Tanala, I mean, I think you've said that in the 90s it was much easier than it is today. Yes, it was easier, and I think now, I think now when you have a peace process, you are at the same time in a transition process and hopefully in a democratisation process, and then uh, you speak about inclusivity and rights in contexts that are much more violent and much more unstable than the ones in the 90s or the one after the Second World War. OK, well, it's been a very interesting discussion and I'm very grateful to all of you. Uh, Hoshi Kasuri, thank you very much from Lahore. Thank Jonathan you. Powell in London, Edward Lutvak in Tokyo and Elisa Tanaala in Helsinki. Thank you all very much. You can comment. And I should say uh, we're looking for a new name. So if, if you've got any views on that as well, uh, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk or tweet at bbcnhextra, comments on the programme, or if you have ideas about uh, how Newshour Extra could be uh, renamed. Uh, but that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.